digging in the dirt. I'm digging in the dirt. This is Digging in the Dirt with Kevin Gallagher, where Kevin and his guests dig a little deeper into today's issues surrounding the environment, climate change, farming, gardening, and food. Welcome. I'm very pleased to have as my guest today, Doug Tallamy. Doug is a professor of entomology and wildlife ecology at the University of Delaware and a New York Times bestselling author. He has won the Garden Club of America Medal for Conservation, among other recognitions. He has written three books, at least, the, the critically acclaimed Bringing Nature Home, How You Can Sustain Wildlife and Native Plants, The Living Landscape, Designing for Beauty and Biodiversity in the Home Garden, and his latest, Nature's Best Hope, a new approach to conservation that starts in your yard. I find this book to be a great optimistic look at the issues facing our environment and a positive way to get ourselves as a species back on track one yard, one community at a time. Welcome, Doug. Thanks, Kevin. Great to be here. Hey, you know, I got to mention right off the bat that I love the, the illustrations and I love the photographs of all the birds. They're amazing. You, did you happen to take those? I, I did. That is, that's the fun part about what I do. Is <laughs> I need a picture of this. I'll go get it. That, that's beautiful, fun. beautiful work. The butterfly at the beginning is just stunning. I love it. I'm pleased to have you here today um, because, you know, in this day and age, especially recent events, we feel kind of helpless as individuals as to what we can do to affect change in our lives, in our world, in our community. And I'm attracted to your idea and those like yours, like the pollinator pathway that give us all a way that we may be able to change the local ecology of our properties and therefore help our planet. How did you arrive at the conclusion that we needed something like the homegrown national park? Uh, you know, it, it, it dawned on me over the years, most of this country, and probably most of the world, but let's just focus on this country, is privately owned. So if we only do conservation on uh, parks and preserves that are not privately owned, we're, we're going to fail. Because <clears throat> we will preserve uh, the amount of life in a corresponding way to the amount of land that we preserve. So if we preserve 15% of, of the U.S., we'll save 15% of the species. And that that is not enough. So if most of us, uh, or if most of the country is privately owned, we've got to do conservation on private property. And that involves landowners of all kinds. It also simplifies the problem. You, you know, you mentioned being overwhelmed, feeling like one person can't make a difference. Don't worry about the entire planet's problems. Just worry about the piece of the earth that you can influence. If you own property, that's obvious. That's where you start. If you don't own property, volunteer. Help somebody who does. Help a land conservancy. Help a park or preserve. They all need volunteers. But that way, you're 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 focusing on on one part of the earth, and you get to see the difference. You get to see what a single person can do. You can go out and plant that oak tree. You can plant that black cherry. You can put in that pollinator garden. You can shrink your lawn. You can, you can remove your invasive species. These are all things that a single person can do. And then you get to see the results and there will be results very quickly. So it gives you positive feedback. What it does is it takes the individual and makes that person an important cog in, in the future wheel of, of conservation. In other words, it empowers us. We're not, we're not helpless. We can make a difference as individuals. 
You start your book off right away by saying that you believe we're on the cusp of a new environmental ethic and that it is going to cross all political boundaries that you feel we're in the coming decades, we're going to have the age of ecological en enlightenment. And you feel that you can make this claim, not only because of your expertise, but with confidence, because it's the only option left for homo sapiens if we want to remain viable in the future. And you say, whether or not we like nature or not, none of us will be able to live for very long in a world without it. Yeah, absolutely. We are we are products of nature, and we're totally dependent on it. We're totally dependent on the the what we call ecosystem services that help the ecosystems produce. Whether we live in a city, you think, oh, I'm not part of an ecosystem. You are, and you're using all of those those products every single day. So you know, killing the nature that supports us just is not an option. And many people recognize that now. Unfortunately, many of them are not our leaders, but um, we're getting there, and we're getting there quickly. You know, the headlines that we keep seeing: we, we've lost three billion birds in the U.S. and we've got uh, global insect decline. These headlines are bothering people, and and I'm actually I'm I'm pleased about that. I didn't think anybody would care for losing our insects and people to say ho ho for losing our birds, but they don't. They're upset and they want to know what they can do. And the good news is, as we said, you can do something and you get to see the response of, of the insects and the birds that need them and all the other wildlife. Mm -hmm. uh, so because, you know, it's it's not an option to to continue down the path we, we are continuing down. So so that's why I'm optimistic. We, you know, we'll we'll come to our senses pretty soon. I have to agree with you. I think people are recognizing there is a problem and they're trying to figure out, well, what the heck could I do? And I like the, like I said, that you, you're giving them something they can, can do. So what is it exactly that you're recommending that we do? We have to find ways to live with nature. In the past, we have had this, this idea that humans are here and nature someplace else. So this mother nature that supports us is someplace else. Well, you know, in the past, that's true. And there was a lot of nature out there and there were plenty of ecosystem services. It's not true anymore. There's not a lot of, lot of nature out there. There is no someplace else. So now the only viable option is to find ways to coexist with nature. You know, uh, E.O. Wilson wrote a book in 2016 called Half Earth, where he said, uh, we have to preserve ecosystem function on half of planet Earth or all of it is gonna collapse. And he spent most of the book talking about the science that supports that statement. The Earth is in agriculture right now. So that leaves the other half. It's got 7.8 billion people and all of our infrastructure. There's no third half out there where we can do the conservation that Wilson's talking about. We've got to do it where we've got a lot of people. So is that why you say we have to replace our humans or nature mentality with a humans and nature ethic? Exactly, exactly. We're going to live together. We're going to coexist. Uh, and it will be the first time in history that we've done that on a large scale. <laughs> yeah, We've, we seem to be, I don't know, we want to master our environment, right? Yes, and I understand why, because, you know, in the very old days, it was nature that killed us. Nature pre pre presented all the big challenges. How do we get through the winter? How do we find enough food? How do we go outside without being eaten by something? Those were those were real problems. So the the idea that we could master nature, get rid of all the predators and control the weather and, and uh, you know, cut down all the forests and turn it into agriculture. That all made sense back then. And if you do it in limited places, it still makes sense. But when you do it everywhere, there's a tipping point that, that you know, a threshold that we've 
we've crossed. <clears throat> so we have to find that happy balance. I'm not suggesting that we have wolves and, and grizzly bears running around our neighborhoods, but I am suggesting that we, we recreate the specialized interactions that comprise most of nature right in our yards. You know, the, the idea that if something's living in your yard, you gotta go kill it, that's, that's not gonna work anymore. So you say that the land surrounding our homes is the low hanging fruit for change. And I guess that would apply to our communities if you don't have a piece of land. So explain that a little bit for us. Well, I say that because, quote, we own it. I mean, I have a problem with this term land ownership as if you get to do anything with it. But right now we own that land, which means we don't have to get permission from the government, from anybody to put particular plants on our, on our yard. Now we have to do it within cultural constraints because there's a lot of homeowners association rules and things like that, but we get to choose the species of plants that are on our yard. We get to choose how many of those plants are there. We get to choose the size of our lawn. We get to make all those decisions and that's all we need to do to, to start to bring nature back to our yards. Just have to make those decisions good ones. Okay, so let's say we have a homeowner out there listening with a large lawn area and some trees that border the property and they're saying, okay, I'm buying this. I think I should do my part with it. They're buying into what you're suggesting. What's the first thing that they should consider doing? I mean, do you dig up part of your lawn and then plant plants or use seeds or give us sort of a, a roadmap in a few minutes? Well, you know, at this point, the ultimate goal and we could change this goal, but the ultimate goal I say is let's cut the area of lawn we have in half. We've got uh, an area of lawn the size of New England right now. And if we cut that in half, that would give us 20 million acres to work with. That's the ultimate goal of the homeowner. How do you start doing that? The easiest thing is simply plant a tree. Now this depends on where you live, but there's certainly in the entire East, planting a tree is, is the, it's a good option. Pick uh, a good tree. Uh, one of those those high performing trees like an oak and then build a bed around that tree right away you have reduced the area that's in lawn you've taken it out of a plant that's that's um, at least the way we treat it it's a it's an ecological deadscape and you've put in the top producing plant in North America there's nothing that comes close to oaks in terms of supplying food for for other animals uh, and it's also a great uh, carbon sequesterer and it manages our watersheds, does lots of wonderful things. So that's the easiest thing. The approach is just to start adding trees to your yard. You know, visuals are important. So you want to have some idea of a design, but boy, I, I look at the properties near me and they're, they're just acres of lawn with nothing on there. That's not a landscape. That's a deadscape. Explain that. Why, why are lawns so bad? I mean, I know I'm, this is a loaded question. I just, right, right. I, I mean, give us a brief description of how this monoculture is so empty. Okay. Every, every piece of land has to do at least four things. It has to support a viable food web. It has to manage the local watershed. It has to sequester carbon these days. We've got to pull carbon out of the atmosphere and lock it up in plant tissue and pump it into the soil. We have to do that desperately. And it has to support viable pollinator populations. Lawn doesn't do any of those four things. And the way we treat it by mowing it rapidly or, or repeatedly every, every week and putting uh, fertilizer and, and herbicides on it repeatedly throughout the year, that destroys the watershed. 
People say, well, your lawn is sequestering carbon. It really isn't. The, the roots are very, very shallow and it pulls carbon in and, and puts it into leaves that we then mow immediately. And then they, they rot and, and send the carbon right back out to the atmosphere. So, so in terms of doing those four things, lawn is, lawn is the very worst choice. The only thing that's worse is paving it over. So that's why I call it a deadscape. So we're talking to Doug Tallamy. He's a professor of entomology, and he's written a book that we're talking about, Nature's Best Hope, which is coupled with a project called the Homegrown National Park that he's involved with. So people can uh, join the Homegrown National Park? Yes, they can. Uh, they go to uh, our, our new website, homegrownnationalpark.org, and um, have a map up. They can, they can get on the map. You know, I've been talking to everybody says you're talking to the choir, to people who, who've been on board with this for, for you know, more than a decade. We've got to reach a whole bunch of people that have never considered the fact that their plants actually are really important and that we need to support the natural world, all the things that we're talking about, and that it's important to do that right at home. So the object of, of the, uh, this, this homegrown national park map is that you say, okay, I feel like doing this. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to add native plants to this part of my yard. It's about this, this much space. And I will put those data into our uh, database. And then little dot is going to show up on the U.S. map showing exactly where you are and the fact that you, you have now contributed to Homegrown National Park. If we, if we cut our lawn in half, and we, we have that 20 million acres to, to work with. That's what Homegrown National Park is. And this map will help us visualize how people are joining it and, and lighting up the map. And we'll get to see biological corridors form. You know, it's, 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 it's kind of a, a fun social media approach to getting people involved. We're hoping people will want to get on the map just because their neighbor did, you know, even if they haven't ever thought about this in the past. You know, we can see, see that map fell in, see, see this dream come, come true. So you just want to take more like preservation of uh, wild areas and ecologically important areas. And you want to take it another step further and bring the yards and the neighborhoods into the project. Is it because we can't afford the luxury of not doing this? Yes. And it's because if we confine conservation to our parks and preserves, we definitely want to keep doing that. But we're going to fail. It's not enough area. We've got to include all of our human dominated spaces, all that private property. So that's, that's that low hanging fruit, that, that property that right now is landscaped strictly for aesthetics, not for ecological function at all. The goal would be for everybody to enhance the, the uh, ecosystem function on their yard to the point where they're, they're uh, actually helping local ecosystems rather than degrading them. Right now, when we build a house, we put in the lawn and the, and the burning bush and all the Asian plants, we're, t we're seriously degrading local ecosystem function. I want to turn it around. I want, I want our yards to be uh, in better shape than our local ecosystems, which right now are, are filled with all of those invasive plants that have escaped from our gardens. Yeah, you know, I've been totally going this direction over the years because I'm a big vegetable gardener. I like lots of tomatoes and I want to see more of my pollinators around to help me have more fruit. And so I find that's helpful when I'm explaining this to other people who like to garden too, that, hey, it's a selfish reason to do this, you know, to help your pollinators and, and make your garden a, a place for all your animals to live. Because, And I think that's part of the, the thing we should talk about is that it's not just one thing, pollinators, it's a system of things, correct? 
Right. Pollinators have gotten a lot of attention in recent years, as they should, because they're they're critically important. We tie their importance to agriculture. And it's true. They're important in agriculture. But that makes people think, well, if I don't live near a farm, I don't need to worry about pollinators because I don't need them. I'd rather talk about uh, the fact that 80% of all plants and 90% of all flowering plants depend on pollinators. So you can totally forget agriculture. We still need pollinators every place we need plants, which is every place, because if our pollinators disappeared, we're going to lose 80 to 90% of the plants on the planet. And that simply is not an option. Uh, so, it, you know, you have plants at home, you need pollinators. Hmm. So let's go back to some of the other things we can do. I mean, I don't think people understand exactly invasive plants. A lot of the stuff, I mean, I mentioned on a previous program with another guest that I made a mistake on a piece of property I have that uh, I went to New York State and they have every year they sell trees and I buy trees and plant trees every year. And but they also sold autumn olive and now <laughs> really yes and i Wait, bought what year was that about uh it's about 18 years ago now oh, okay all right <laughs> so they don't sell it anymore <laughs> good good <laughs> yeah but i planted it and it's proliferating you know i mean it dies off pretty quick too but it's also it, i can see it you know all over the place because of the birds you know the birds yeah. love the, the, the berries and they yeah. are they're spreading the seed around so explain why they're so bad to the, the ecology of, uh, again, we're back to the systems, right? I mean, right. our local kind of insects and animals are not compatible with these invasive plants. That's the main reason? It's the insects that are not compatible. Our insects, 90% uh, of them are host plant specialists. They specialize. In other words, they can only develop on plants they have an evolutionary history with, which are gonna be native plants. So I always use the monarch as an example. It's a specialist on milkweeds. So you can plant burning bush and crepe myrtle and calorie pear and hostas and any of the other things we put in our yards all the time. And you will have no monarchs because it's not a milkweed. That's the only thing they're going to develop on. And that is true for 90% of the, the caterpillar species that are out there. Why are caterpillars important? Because they are transferring more energy from plants to other animals than any other type of insect. So you don't have caterpillars, you're not going to have most birds. 96% of our birds rear their young on insects, and most of those insects are caterpillars. Hmm. And you need a lot of caterpillars. So a, a chickadee, for example, tiny little bird, third of an ounce, takes six to 9,000 caterpillars to make one clutch of chickadees just to get it to the point where it leaves the nest. And then they eat caterpillars after that too. Where are they gonna get these caterpillars? They've gotta get them from your yard. They only uh, forage about 50 meters from your yard. You say, well, they'll fly down to the nearest woodlot. No, they won't, it's too far away. And if they're only breeding in the woodlot, it's not a big enough space to maintain their populations. That's why we need to have all of this happening right, right at home. Uh, and it's why native plants are so much more important in terms of maintaining local biodiversity than plants from Asia or, or China. They have not been here long enough for our insects to adapt to them. And this is a new thought for gardeners because they think they want, uh, you know, you, you buy a plant that's pest free, nothing can eat it. Well, if you think of your plants only as decorations, that makes sense, but they, they have important ecological roles and capturing the energy from the sun and passing it on to other living things is one of its very most important roles. If they don't pass it on, it's that's a dead end food web. There's then, then that's why I call it a deadscape. There's nothing else that can live there because there is no energy in the system. 
That sounds like what must be going on down in the Southwest. There's, a, there's just a, a big kill off of birds that they said they found out was because of starvation. Yeah, you know, so many, <laughs> we've got a lot of problems. Climate <laughs> change is a huge one there. We've got terrible, terrible droughts killing off a lot of the plants. We had, um, you know, terrible wildfires over millions of, of uh, acres. Um, that's removing an awful lot of food that those birds need. And then they got to, they have to migrate. So it's not, it's not a simple cause, but loading the landscape with plants that do not make the insects that these birds need is certainly one of the serious problems we have. You know, I, a lot of people would consider caterpillars a, a pest, you know, I mean, I, the greenhorn tomato worm, I definitely consider a pest in my garden, you know, you know, he'll eat my tomato plants in a night. But I mean, what about when you see caterpillars around and what, what, are, what are they foraging on? And, and, and I think most people will go, oh, we, we got to spray because look at all these caterpillars. Right. This is one of the reasons I say oaks are the best plant you can put in your yard in 84% of the, the counties in North America because they support so many types of caterpillars. In the mid-Atlantic state, they support 557 species of, of caterpillars. So that's 557 species of bird food. Hmm. Compared to something like a tulip tree that supports only 21 or something like ginkgo that supports zero. Zelkova yeah. supports zero. So if you go down the street, you see an oak tree. Is it defoliated? Is it, you know, no. But those 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 caterpillars are on there. And the, when you have a healthy, balanced ecosystem, you have the plant making the caterpillars, but you also have the birds eating those caterpillars. So nothing gets out of whack. The times we have serious outbreaks that do defoliate plants, that's typically from, from uh, insect species that are invasive themselves. They're from Europe, they're from China, like the emerald ash borer or the gypsy moth. And I'm not suggesting we have these non-native insects because they're here without their natural enemies. Nothing's controlling them. I'm talking about uh, just our native insects. Those are the ones we want to encourage. And that you do by planting things that they are used to. Right, right. I get it. So let's go. What are some of those things? Well, again, oaks are the, are the best in terms of, of making caterpillars. Uh, prunus, so native, native cherries, black cherry, pin cherry, American plum, Chickasaw plum. Um, native willows, those guys are tied for the second place in, in terms of making caterpillars. Birches are very high. Uh, poplars, cottonwood, aspens are, are very high. Among uh, herbaceous plants, goldenrods really high. They support 110 species of, of caterpillars. Asters are very high. Native sunflowers are very high. And the three I just mentioned are also great at supporting specialist pollinators. Those are native bees that can only reproduce in the pollen of particular plant genera. If you don't have those plants in your yard, you've lost all those native bee species. So if you don't have a goldenrod and, and asters and perennial sunflowers in your yard, you've lost about 40 species of native bees that could be there because you've, you don't have the plant that they absolutely need. You can plant your, your butterfly bush, you can plant your zinnia, these non-native plants that make a lot of nectar, but our native, our specialist native bees cannot use this. They cannot reproduce on them. They can't so again, use zinnias, huh? They can get nectar from them, but they cannot reproduce. They, they won't use the pollen from, from zinnias. Again, it's why choosing native plants over non-native plants is always going to be healthier for the biodiversity around you. We bought some native sunflowers, a, a very odd species. They do really well in my garden, and they're always there. They're perennial, and they, they definitely attract lots of bees, too. So yeah, yeah. I know what you're talking about there. That 
that was just an accidental thing that happened to us and we we learned something from that and in, in california there are 60 species of native bees that only use those sunflowers so really yeah i'm gonna make sure i get more of those <laughs> let me let so, me talk about your your tomato hornworm okay so you've got your garden and that's great you want to grow food locally don't want to discourage that at all and here's a native insect, the tomato hornworm that, that gets on your tomatoes. It's actually the tobacco hornworm most, most often. What are we going to do about that? Well, there are little wasps in the family Briconidae. We'll just call them little, little Briconid wasps that lay eggs inside of the tomato hornworm, the tobacco hornworm. And the larvae eat the insides of the caterpillar out. They essentially kill it. And then they tunnel out through the skin and spin a white cocoon on its back. So I'm I've sure seen you've it. seen seen uh, dozens of cocoons on the backs of your your caterpillars. Absolutely. Where did those those parasitoids come from? Well, they are sphinx moss specialists. So at, at my house, we have 17 species of sphinx moss, in addition to the tomato or tobacco hornworm, and we have them because we've got the plants that support them. Things like ash uh, and things like black cherry. Um, they all have different species of sphinx moths on them, and they all support that braconid parasitoid. So when the tobacco hornworm comes to our garden, there's a big population of those, those braconid wasps around that, that attack them right away. The caterpillar doesn't get, doesn't get very far before it gets nailed by those, those braconid wasps because we've got so many other sphinx moth species supporting that natural enemy complex. If you don't have the native plants around your garden, you won't have any sphinx moth species. So when the, when the tobacco hornworm finds your, your tomato, there aren't any natural enemies and it goes crazy. There you go. It's like the, we were talking before about the systems, right? right. If if right. one species is dominant, you're going to have issues. If yeah. you, if it's balanced, you, you probably have a lot less issues. That's the goal. And you also have to agree to not worry about having so many pests. I mean, it's okay to have some pests, in other words. Yeah, we... we, we... <laughs> That's right. We've got to tolerate the insects. That means that if you go up and you look at a leaf on your tree, some of it will be eaten. Uh, and some you know, people say, oh, that's terrible. It's going to hurt the tree. It's not going to hurt the tree. And we view our trees and our, most of our plants at a distance. So if, you know, if you're 10 feet, 20 feet away, you don't notice that damage at all. If you have a plant that has no damage on it, it means it hasn't supported anything. And you've got, that's a one way, you know, that's a, a dead end food web right there so but it does require uh, tolerating other living things around you and and we have not been good about that and of course the you know the media tells us we've got to go buy a poison and spray it and kill everything that moves you know we've, we bought into that and so you know most of the population has what we call entomophobia if it crawls it's terrible and you've got to kill it no you don't <laughs> it's not going to hurt you yeah people are afraid of bees right and bees generally especially the honeybee doesn't sting you well, the honeybee is a social bee, and if you're near its hive, they will sting you. I mean, it's, of course, it's introduced. The native bees, though, for the most of them, 70% of them, 80% of them are not social. Maybe it's 90%. They're solitary, so they're not protecting a hive. You can pet them when they're foraging, and they're not going to turn around and sting you. Uh, and most people think when they get stung, they think they get stung by a bee. It's probably a yellow jacket, which is a wasp or a paper wasp or a, or a bald faced hornet. Those are all wasps. They're predators, but they're the major stingers in our yards. It's not the bees. Yeah, I've been stung by them five at a time. <laughs> yeah, 
Yeah. <laughs> Don't step on their hive. It's in the ground. Yeah. Yeah. No, I walked into an outdoor shower and they had built a nest inside oh, the last yeah. bin there and they went after me really quick. Yeah. That's not good. Yeah. That's the problem. Then people go, oh, got to start spraying them all. You get, you that's get right. afraid of them, right? You know, that's because right. yeah. you may need a, uh, an EpiPen or something after that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yep. So to finish uh, things you can do in your yard, you said in the book, they put a bubbler in, put some water source of some sort. You want yeah, to The birds that? love that. Um, birds, of course, if they're going to breed, they need all that food, but they, they love clean water too. And uh, we, we call it a bubbler because it, you know, there's a little pump and it, it keeps the water moving and makes a little splashing sound. Uh, the idea is that it, it most of these birds are migrants. We've got some like 380 species of birds that are neotropical migrants and they, they fly to the tropics for the winter where there's all these little streams making bubbly noises and, and they get their clean water there. Bubbling water means clean water. So they're, they're really attracted to it as opposed to a bird bath, which is just stagnant sitting there. And that produces mosquitoes, which and nobody And that produces wants. mosquitoes, right. But we should say that, uh, as you point out in the book, and I've always used it, is that still water, you can always throw these little, um, these little wafers in there that have BT right. in them. Mosquito dunks, yep. Yep, they work out, they work out pretty well. Mm -hmm. And you got to make sure you dump everything that's got water, standing water in it, too. That's, yeah. You have to be yeah. active in the fight against mosquitoes. Right. Um, what about the role of commercial nurseries, landscaping companies, you know, the town rules, the, host, the home association rules, I mean, in thwarting this idea of trying to change over your yards? I mean, you almost, a lot of people have landscapers, you know, that come every weekend, you know, and do the lawn and everything. How, how do we deal with that and and help make change well remember the landscaper the landscape designer the landscape architect all these people you hire are working for you you're not working for them um, so if you want to make a change say do it this way and and they say i won't then hire somebody else um but they're you know they're coming on board they they recognize that we've got to make some changes the most stubborn problem we have are these homeowner association rules that say oh it's got to be exactly like this and most of those were were created way back in the 70s when we were trying to everybody wanted a high status neighborhood and we we're trying to fight the old you know the rusty car in the front yard image say no we're not you can't do that we have these rules and then they started spreading over to uh, the type of landscape. It had to be immaculate. It had to be manicured, and um, and then some. You know, some of them even choose the plants you can have, and they have all these all these uh, very heavy top-down rules. So if we change that, people get upset. You have these ordinances, and there's a lot of misinformation out there. People think that if you put native plants in your yard, you'll have rats. No, you have rats because they're eating human garbage and they, you know, you got more rats in the city where there are no plants at all. So uh, they say vermin, you know, will come with plants around. And that's, you know, that's, that's all just nonsense. So yeah, we've, we like the cl cluttered look, we call it, you know, our, our yard is definitely different than our neighbors, but yeah. you can't go so far as to get rid of the lawn in the front of the house. You know, then it's, you're right. It, the peer pressure is serious on this stuff. Peer pressure is serious. So we can, I do want to work within the cultural norms and the, 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 the culture says it's got to be neat. It can be neat. It can be native and neat. Hey, I like that native and neat. Good. Mm -hmm. So you, the lawn you keep, you're going to have less lawn, but the lawn you keep will be mowed. It'll be manicured. That's your that's your status symbol. That's your cue for care that shows you're a, you're a good citizen in your in your neighborhood. But if you have more trees in your yard, that does not you know that's fine. You just have to keep it up. It's 
native landscaping is not the lack of landscaping where you just abandon things. Not at all. Mm-hmm. And there, there are things you can, you again, cues for care that you can add. So if you have a lot more plants in your yard, keep a mower's width of, of grass bordering those plantings, which again shows it's intentional. It's, it's uh, well, well cared for. It simply sends the message that you too are a high class citizen and you belong in this neighborhood. That's all people are looking for. Right. And, and you can really impress them too. I mean, yeah. Some yeah. people come by and go, wow, you guys, what are you doing to your yard? You know, because we're really big into all kinds of stuff, you know. Yeah, so it's exactly. Like, exactly. You can impress them and, and win them over. You're listening to Digging in the Dirt. I'm Kevin, and I'm speaking with uh, Professor of Entomology and New York Times bestselling author, Doug Tallamy. And we're talking about his organization, Homegrown National Park, and how to make your yard a, a lot more ecologically friendly. By the way, the Cornell Co-op Extension will be celebrating the first day of spring with their spring gardening school online. It's because of the COVID stuff that we're all online these days. It will happen on May 21st, the first day of spring. Doug will kick off the day as the keynote speaker and he is just one of the many incredible guest speakers who will be participating. You can go to the Cornell Co-op Extension and you know just put in Spring Gardening School online May 21st and you'll it's going to pop up and you can find out more about that event. Doug, I got to talk to you briefly about the much maligned weed, you know, before we get out of this. You, you know, you in the book you say something really interesting. You say we have permission to to destroy weeds because they're called weeds. <laughs> and many of them are actually valuable native plants and you yeah. know they've been labeled you know you know it's like purslane right yeah <laughs> exactly it's very nutritious and you can make a you know a great sauce out of it you know if you want and so talk to me a little bit about the importance of these native plants proliferating in your local ecology and i mean we already touched on it with the fact that it, it are native insects and native birds and everything are used to native plants but why have they been sort of weeded out well you know the the uh, the names of these plants were assigned when europeans came over originally uh, and europeans did agriculture in a very different way from from native americans native americans had polycultures and they planted a lot of plants together but europeans wanted monocultures and any plant that grew up in their monoculture they called a weed so that's where Joe Pye weed comes from and butterfly weed or, or New York iron weed, all these good native plants that support our pollinators, support our monarchs and, and are, are essential to our ecosystems were labeled weeds because they grew up in these monoculture strips where our agriculture was. Remember, a weed is a plant out of place. Our native plants are not out of place here in, in North America. It's really the plants from Asia that are out of place. So if we really want to fight true weeds, we can, you know, you can fight all those non-natives. But definitely the invasive plants that are in our natural areas displacing our native plants, they are weeds. And those that's where we should uh, put our attention. But it's a marketing issue. If we want people to plant native plants, we can't be calling them weeds. So I I talk about Asclepius tuberosa, the uh, the butterfly weed. That's a, it's a native milkweed. The monarch loves it. Let's call it monarch's delight. And all of a sudden, it sounds okay. Yeah, sounds we'll good. plant that. Yeah. <laughs> so where can people get native plants? Where where would they go to look for them? Besides, like you know, figuring out like where Homegrown National Park is. At, at, by the way, at homegrownnationalpark.com, you can find more information. I'm sure. But where where would you recommend them looking for? 
um, native plants. Right. You know, this depends on where you live. And it used to be much more of an issue than it is now because uh, native plant sales are going through the roof. Uh, as a matter of fact, there's such a demand for them that uh, it's, it's hard to keep up. But there are a lot of independent growers. The big box stores are even carrying more natives or regular nurseries uh, are carrying a higher percentage of natives because the demand is there. But every state has a native plant society. And so wherever you live, uh, I would go there first, go to their website and just, you know, ask them a question. Where's the best place to get native plants where I live? And um, there are more and more options these days. This is where, you know, Google is just a, it's a great tool. Yeah, I know that. Native plants national... from my county, boom, they pop up. Yeah, they do. I did it last night. I was reading your book. I said, I got to buy some more of these. Where can I get them? And then, sure enough, you're right. In Long Island, native plants, are, you know, it was like right away. It was right there. And uh, also, I, I found the National Wildlife Federation has a native plant finder. That yeah, you can, that's, that, that will tell you which ones to go for, right? Yeah, nwf.org native plant finder, if you're interested in that. Well, Doug, you know, I usually ask uh, people, are they optimistic? And reading your book, I even started off saying your book is totally optimistic. Uh, and one of the reasons you are optimistic is you say it's about the resiliency of nature. Can we speak about that as we finish up here? Yeah, and, and I've gotten more optimistic over the years as I've seen uh, how easy it is to do this. Just looking at our own property here, and we've got 10 acres in, in uh, southeast Pennsylvania. It was mowed for hay. It was part of a, a very old farm, farmed for 300 years, and the soil was exhausted. Almost nothing on the property other than invasive plants. There were a ton of them. And, you know, I've seen how easy it is to, to, to recreate the natural world right on our property. And just to give you give you some numbers here. Well, about four years ago, I decided to, to start to take pictures of every species of moth that I could find on our property. Uh, and I didn't know how many I'd be able to come up with. Of course, the moths are there because of the plants we have put back. But this fall, I, I hit 1,030 species of moths, not butterflies, haven't gotten to them yet, which is, so our 10 acres is one 240,000th the land area of all of Pennsylvania, but we've got 38% of all moss species on our property because we put the plants back. And because we put all those moss there, we've got 50, I think it's 59 species of, of uh, terrestrial breeding birds that have bred on our property, which is 40% of all the terrestrial birds in, in Pennsylvania, just on, on 10 acres. Uh, which which shows it works. You can you can put this back, and I've got uh, you know examples on much smaller properties, including the High Line in the middle of New York City. You don't need ten acres for this to work. If you put the plants back, um, bits and pieces of nature will come to your yard, and they come very quickly. Yeah, I guess you know I, I, it was in your book too, and a lot of people have written about the resiliency of nature. Is that you know it can it will bounce back if we leave it alone, but it'll even do better if we follow the rules and help it. Right. You know, about two or three months ago, we the National uh, World Wildlife Fund said we've lost uh, two thirds of, of the Earth's wildlife in the last uh, 50 years. Wow. All I can think of is it, it not at my house. We haven't. I bet we have we have more than increased biodiversity by by two thirds simply by putting the plants back, which tells me this is reversible. These are terrible, scary headlines. Everybody just throws their hands up. But this is a global problem with a grassroots solution. 
everybody can contribute to it. And if everybody does, we'll turn it around. That's why I'm optimistic. Awesome. Douglas Tallamy, professor of entomology, and his book is Nature's Best Hope, A New Approach to Conservation That Starts in Your Yard. Thank you for coming on with me here at Digging in the Dirt. You are quite welcome. Anytime. Digging in the dirt. Digging in the dirt. You've been listening to Digging in the Dirt with Kevin Gallagher. To hear past programs anytime you want, visit the podcast section of WPKN.org or diggingindedirtradio.com.